Well, good morning, Mosaic. How's it going today? Morning. I am so thrilled to be back here. It's been a while for me since I've been up here. Uh, but Mosaic has always been so gracious in allowing me uh, the opportunity to speak the word a little bit. And I, I'm especially excited these next couple of weeks as I get to do something that I haven't really had a chance to do before. I get a chance to uh, take us on a journey together, kind of take a deep dive into a book of the New Testament. And that's really where my training lies. Uh, that's where my background uh, has really taken me before. So I'm especially excited to look together over these next couple of weeks at the letter to Philemon. The letter to Philemon, I, I realize, is probably not a part of the Bible uh, that many of us have spent a lot of time in, which is a shame because I really love it. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit about why I love the letter to Philemon. There are two things that I think the church doesn't really talk about. We leave, it, leave them unexamined a lot of times. Um, and, and that happens even though they account for a pretty sizable percentage of the darkness, sin, evil, whatever you want to call it, both out in the world and in here in me. Um, and those two things are what I'm going to be calling the will to dominate others and the will to exclude others. Now, those two things might not be what immediately jump into your mind when you think about sin, evil, darkness, whatever you want to call it. But I would challenge you that if you were to take a little bit of time and think about some of the things in your life that you regret the most, or some of the things that have been done to you that have affected your life the most, or if you were to pick up a newspaper or pull up CNN.com and read a little bit about what's going on in the world, you wouldn't have to look too long before you start to see our tendency as human beings to try to dominate others and our tendency to exclude others, taking a really central role in what you see going on. And the letter to Philemon functions as sort of a piece of resistance literature to these tendencies in us to dominate and to exclude. It doesn't, I don't read the letter to Philemon and find a step-by-step guide to dealing with them and getting rid of them in myself, but I do feel myself very directly but gently called out on those dark tendencies within me. And with that in mind, I want to take you back to a time in my life where I had a little bit of power. And unfortunately, it's a time in my life that represents one of my deepest regrets. I'm going to go back to my sophomore year in college. I went to college in the city of Chicago, and I was living with my roommate and best friend, uh, Jamie. Uh, and we were just having a blast. We, we were riding high uh, we were having a great time going on adventures in the city. Um, I wish we'd taken in a few more museums uh, while we were there, but it wasn't really in the cards. Uh, but we were having a great time. And then the new freshmen showed up when we were in our sophomore year. And that's when we met Norm. And Norm very quickly latched on to the two of us. And he decided that the three of us were going to be very good friends. It was not a unanimous decision. But it seemed that Jamie and I had not been given veto power. 
over that. Norm was always around. He was always hanging around with us. He, he was hanging in our dorm room. He was tagging along with us. And he wasn't really getting the hint. And uh, the two of us, my roommate and I, we, we, we were a little bit too passive-aggressive to just be direct and say, we, we, we don't really want you here. Uh, but we kind of made this decision. We never talked about it. Uh, we never spoke openly or made like a formal decision that instead of bringing it up, we were just going to do whatever we could and say whatever we could to make Norm feel unwelcome with us. Norm kind of became our whipping boy. We would kind of subtly insult him and dig into him a little bit when he was around, hoping that by doing that, we'd be able to effectively exclude him uh, from, uh, from our time. And even if we couldn't exclude him, then at least we could put him down and make ourselves feel a little bit better about ourselves. So whether we were going to exclude him or dominate him uh, in our ways, we, that, that's what we decided to do. That's how we decided to deal with him. But somehow still, it didn't really work. It's still very limited success because Norm uh, just had too pure a spirit in him. He had too much love uh, for us, and he just believed the best in us so counterintuitively that, you know, he just, he just stuck around. And unfortunately, even though it didn't really work, I, the things that we said still hit their mark and still sort of started to affect the way that he saw himself and affect his self-image. Uh, but, uh, you know, finally, you know, that lasted all through our sophomore year and then all through our junior year. And then finally, by our senior year, Norm realized that he could do far better than us as friends and he kind of made his own way. Uh, and I think, I think if 2004 Jeff could be standing here today, he would, he would have a lot of objections to the way I'm telling this story. He would, he would be able to stand here and tell you all about how Norm asked for it, how Norm was obnoxious. And he, could probably, he would probably tell you that what we did was telling Norm some hard truths about himself. But the truth is that Norm, for whatever reason, decided to give the two of us power in his life, either to lift him up or to tear him down. And we very, very consistently chose to tear him down. And that is a significant regret in my life, not just because I did something bad, which I did, but because that cost me the friendship of a gentle, faithful, loving brother who I, I will probably never get back in my life. And that's a huge shame. I think what my relationship and my time with Norm teaches me and reminds me is that all relationships involve power. We don't always think about that, but all of our relationships involve power. Think about some of the relationships, especially the significant relationships in your life and how power works between you. Some of our relationships have some built-in power because of the roles that we have. There's power in the parent-child relationship, uh, teacher-student relationships, employer-employee relationships, pastor-church relationships have power built into them. 
And then there are all these other factors that affect the way power dynamics work between us. You know, there, there are all sorts of ways that social privilege functions within our relationships, whether it's racial privilege, gender privilege, economic or class privilege play a role when we interact with each other. And then there are some things that are a lot more difficult to quantify that, that affect the way power works in our relationships. Like, say, you and me become friends, and just for whatever reason, just because of our dynamic, maybe I require your affirmation and approval a little bit more than you need mine. That affects our relationship. Maybe in some very subtle ways, it affects our relationship. You know, like maybe whenever we're going to go out and grab a beer, it's just kind of understood that if we're disagreeing where we're going to go, I'm going to defer to you. Or maybe it's something a little bit more dysfunctional than that, like maybe my relationship with Norm, where maybe I start to subtly insult you. And maybe it's something very easy for you to just kind of write off and say, oh, Jeff is just kidding. Uh, but slowly, maybe even without you knowing it, it starts to subtly affect the way that you see yourself. Or maybe it just becomes out-and-out out toxic, where I become full-on abusive, and I start to see you as existing just to make me feel better about myself. And that's what leads us today to Paul's letter to Philemon. Because what this letter is about, this letter is about what happens in a deeply dysfunctional relationship when those power dynamics collide with the gospel and the kingdom. We have in the letter to Philemon uh, a couple of people in a relationship. We have a slave and a slave owner. And I think we can agree that's about as dysfunctional as human relationships get, right? A slave and a slave owner. Let me, before, we're gonna, before we take a look at the letter to Philemon, let me kind of set it up uh, for you. Here's what's going on in this story. Uh, so it's been a couple of decades since the resurrection of Jesus. And at this time, the most prominent individual spreading the message of Jesus is the Apostle Paul. Now, this message of Jesus is that the love and grace and forgiveness of God has broken into the world in the person of Jesus, and it's available to everybody, regardless of your ethnicity or your gender or your socioeconomic status. And that was a revolutionary idea, that the grace and forgiveness of God was available to everybody, and that Jesus was drawing everybody who would come into what he calls the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, as we talk about here at Mosaic, that's the movement by which Jesus invites us to become a part of and participate in the work that God is doing in the world, spreading that transformative love and the kindness and justice and peace that go with it everywhere that we go. One of the places that Paul goes to spread that message is a city called Colossae. And one of the people that he meets there is a wealthy man by the name of Philemon. Philemon joins this Jesus movement under Paul's teaching, and eventually he becomes a leader in the church there at Colossae. 
In fact, the church starts meeting at Philemon's house. Now, Philemon was a wealthy man, and as generally was the case back then, Philemon was a slaveholder. And he had a slave by the name of Onesimus. And at some point after Paul has left the city uh, and has moved on in his ministry, this slave named Onesimus runs away. We don't know why. We don't really have any idea. It's implied uh, from the letter. Um, it looks like he also stole a little bit from Philemon. Um, but he runs away, takes off, and in the course of his running, he encounters again the Apostle Paul. And as a result of his interaction with the Apostle Paul, Onesimus also becomes a Jesus follower. And now Paul has kind of a bizarre first time it's happened problem that he's facing. What kind of relationship should he be looking to restore between Philemon and Onesimus? We now have a situation where we have a Jesus follower who is legally owned by another Jesus follower. And it's not really established what you do in that situation and how you negotiate that. So what Paul does is he writes a letter to Philemon, but not just any letter. He writes a letter to be read publicly in the church that's meeting in Philemon's home. And so just imagine the scene, you know, a gathering, a church gathering, meeting in Philemon's home. Philemon is probably there sitting in the seat of honor. Everybody knows who everybody is and what's going on. Everybody knows Philemon. Everybody knows Onesimus. Everybody probably knows Paul. And the letter is read. By me. (laughs) This letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. I'm writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister Aphia, and to our fellow soldier Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I'm I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. That is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do, but because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you. Consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me for a while while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer a slave. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave. 
for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. <laughs> yes, my brother, please do, the, do me this favor. For the Lord's sake, give me this encouragement in Christ. I am confident that as I write this letter, that you will do what I ask you and even more. One more thing. Please prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my co-workers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thank you so much, John. Uh, I was... Can you feel the tension of this letter being read publicly in front of everybody? Philemon just got called out by Paul in front of his church that he is to some extent in charge of. He just got called out by Paul. Now, here's what makes, here's what makes it a little bit difficult for us to read and apply the letter to Philemon. I, I feel like for most of us, most of us don't go through life simply as a powerful person like Philemon was in his context, or as simply powerless the way Onesimus was. I think probably most of us have some relationships where we feel like we kind of wield the power, we influence, we kind of call the shots and hold the cards. And then we have some relationships where we feel a little bit on the bottom. You know, there, there are people, um, probably people that you know, you know, who, you know, when they're at home, they call the shots. They control the schedule. They control the money. They kind of set the agenda of what's going to go on. But when they go into the office and they go in under the thumb of their harsh supervisor, they are completely on the bottom. So I think for most of us, we have relationships where we're the Philemon in the relationship, and we have relationships where we're the Onesimus in that relationship. Now, that's not universally true, of course. There are lots of people um, who their lives are so defined by maybe one abusive relationship that, that they walk through life feeling more or less powerless. And that, that's a very real thing that a lot of people experience. Uh, but I think that's the exception more than the rule. So here's what we're going to do. For, over the next couple of weeks, today we're going to look and approach this letter from the perspective of Philemon and those relationships where we are on top and we hold power and call the shots. Then next week we're going to flip the script a little bit, and consider what this looks like, what it looks like to enter the kingdom from the perspective of Onesimus and those relationships where we feel like we're on the bottom, where we get the short stick in our power dynamics. So looking at this from the perspective of Philemon, let's cut right to the chase. 
What is it that Paul is asking Philemon to do? And I don't know about you, but as I read this, and, you know, it's a little bit unclear um, in there, but I get a little bit disappointed. That's my first instinct, is to be a little bit disappointed with Paul's approach here. Uh, Because does Paul ask Philemon to free Onesimus? Not exactly. You know, he asks him to welcome him back. And I know that, you know, for me, and I imagine for a lot of us in here, you know, as, as 2018 Americans, you know, we would like for Paul to take a much stronger stance with this issue of slaves and slave owners. What I would like to hear Paul say here, if I'm completely honest, is Philemon, I am sending Onesimus back to you and you will liberate him. And by the way, you're going to liberate the rest of your slaves as well. And if there are any other slave owners back there in Colossae, you better let them know they better not be there when I get back. That's what I want to hear Paul say, but that's not what we get out of Paul here in this letter to Philemon. And so we should take a moment to just, you know, you might be asking the question, does slavery in Philemon's context, does it look like what we imagine slavery to be? And that's a complicated question, but the short answer is yes. Uh, Slavery um, was an exploitive institution back then, just like the way we think of it. It didn't have the racial dynamics Uh, that we think of like with the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, But slavery, really in all its forms, really what it is, is it's the ultimate outcome when our human will to dominate others and our will to exclude others, because slavery is excluding people from full participation in humanity. Uh, Slavery is what happens when that will to dominate and that will to exclude goes unchecked. Uh, a, a scholar of the book of Philemon, a guy by the name of Scott McKnight, he's a New Testament professor at North Park Seminary. Here's how he defined slavery as it relates to the book, uh, to the letter to, Phi- to Philemon. Slavery, by definition, is a means of securing and maintaining an involuntary labor force by a group in society which monopolizes political and economic power. Slavery describes a perceived inferior human being under the total authority of another perceived superior human being, and the reality of that perception of inferiority is established by power and authority. Even Aristotle had written a few hundred years uh, before we get to Paul and Philemon and Onesimus uh, that some people just have, quote-unquote, the nature of a slave, and that for some people being mastered by others is just appropriate for them. It's just natural for them. So slavery, yes, was an evil and exploitive institution in the first century, and Paul chooses not in this letter to address it at an institutional level. And that confuses us a little bit. That probably, if you're like anything like me, that makes us a bit uncomfortable that Paul chooses to go in this direction, or rather not to go in that direction. I think that's largely because modernity has conditioned us and taught us, when we think about justice, to think of it first and foremost and almost exclusively at an institutional level. But here's what we absolutely have to understand if we're going to get what Paul is saying to Philemon. Philemon 
in first century Colossae, to free a slave would have been easy. It would have been commonplace. It happened for all kinds of different reasons. For Paul to make that request of Philemon would not have been a radical request or something he really would have had to dance around in any way. But what he does ask Philemon to do, to welcome Onesimus back as a brother, no longer as a slave, but as a brother, that request was outrageous. That relationship, that change in a relationship between a slave and a slave owner was impossible. So for Paul to write to Philemon and say, hey, I've gotten really fond of Onesimus. Could you do me a favor? Could you let him go free? Everybody hearing it would have responded by saying, oh, that's nice. Good for Onesimus. For Paul to write to Philemon and say, welcome Onesimus back, no longer as a slave, but as a brother, and as you would me, that completely changes the fabric of their community. Really what Paul is saying here is that in the kingdom of God, there's this mysterious new reality at play that goes beyond the social institutions that determine who has power in our relationships. And in this new reality, when we enter the kingdom of God, it requires that we change our relationship with power and surrender our toxic power dynamics. And maybe the most surprising thing to me about this letter is I don't think it's just Philemon that's getting this lesson here. I think we're seeing Paul learn this in real time, too. Did you pick up on kind of the passive-aggressive tone that Paul has in this letter? And John brought that out so well in his reading. It was brilliant and spot-on. And here, kind of this, you know, I could tell you to do this, but I'm just going to ask you, you know, sure, you owe me everything, but don't take that into consideration, here, it's been funny as I've talked to people about this letter, you know, that, that strikes people a little bit differently. When I, when I discuss it with my wife, uh, she kind of thought that Paul almost sounds like a mob boss here, you know, kind of, I know you're going to do the right thing, but don't, don't, don't take what I'm saying into consideration, you know. Uh, when I talked to Bill uh, about it, he thought that Paul sounded a little bit more like a mother, which I think tells us a lot about Paul's relationship with his mother, and possibly about my wife's relationship with the mob. Uh, but, <laughs> but as I kind of see it, as I come to understand what Paul is doing here, I don't think that what we really have is a passive-aggressive argument. I think what we have here is a leader who, you know, if you've read much of what Paul has to say in the New Testament, you know Paul does not have any problem playing the authority card. He does not have any problem pulling out his title of apostle to make a point. And I think what we have here is he's realizing the irony and the contradiction of taking our commanding and domineering tone and saying, Philemon, you need to surrender your power dynamics, your, your toxic power dynamics. Paul is trying to build a community that's marked by transformative love. 
And to do that, he cannot use what he has always used before, often used before, which is kind of a domineering, authoritative tone. Now, I would imagine that as we're talking about this today, there are probably some relationships in your life that immediately jump into your mind where you realize, yeah, I've got a bit of a problem. Um, I, maybe I do take advantage of this individual. Maybe I do have some power that I use in a negative way. Uh, if that's not you, and, and you kind of think to yourself, I don't know that I really do this. I don't know that I really have any relationships like this. Let me just pose a couple of questions for you to kind of examine yourself and your relationships and see you know, if there might be some toxic dynamics at play there. Number one, in what relationships do you depend very often on fear to get the results that you want? Think about your kids. Think about your spouse. Think about, if you're an employer, think about your employees. Do you use fear to get what you want? That could be fear of consequences. That could be physical intimidation, fear of you blowing up, fear of you walking out. Uh, in what relationships do you use fear? In what relationships do you depend on your position? You know, obviously, sometimes we have to make executive decisions as leaders, but if you're pulling that card all the time, I would suggest, is that, does that suggest some, some, some poor power dynamics there? And finally, in what relationships do you depend on excuses and justifications? Things like, well, they're asking for it all the time. Because here's the thing. In 2018, not many of us go around saying, I'm going to exercise power in a really dysfunctional and toxic way. <laughs> Most of the time, power, and especially toxic power, is very, very skilled at justifying itself. And I have one more thing I want to say about that, particularly to the men in the room. I lived for a few years on a Bible college men's dorm. I've worked in churches for a long time. And right now I work in the prison in Nebraska where most of the sex offenders and most of the child abusers end up. And you can believe me when I tell you I know exactly how easy it is and how common it is to hide abusive and exploitive behavior of women and children behind the facade of the good Christian guy and the great Christian family man. And I may not know who you are here, but I know that you're here. And I want you to hear this today. Don't deceive yourself. You cannot simultaneously participate in the kingdom of God while abusing the vulnerable people in your life. I'm going to say that one more time. You cannot simultaneously participate in the kingdom of God while abusing the vulnerable people in your life. And if you don't believe me, read a little bit of Jesus. Are we good on that? All right. So apart from that, if you're hearing, and as we're talking about some of these toxic power dynamics, if you do hear that and you're thinking, I think I do have a problem, how do I surrender those po toxic power dynamics? Just a few quick thoughts. 
for you. Number one, talk about it. Talk about power in your relationships. I know that's awkward and not something that we really do, but talk about it openly with people. I think I have a problem. I think I've been taking advantage of you. I know that I've been making you uncomfortable. Maybe I've been insulting it. I don't want to be that way anymore. It's okay to own your crap in your relationships. You know, having, having stuff that we bring in, that's what it means to be human and be in relationships. And it doesn't get better unless we talk about it. Number two, if this is a serious problem in your life, do seek some professional help about it. Controlling behaviors and domineering behaviors can be a serious problem. And, you know, talk to somebody before they spiral out of control. And finally, number three, look for ways to use your power in people's lives to bring refreshment, to bring life and blessing. That is something apparently that Philemon generally was pretty good at. We saw Paul mention that in verse seven. You've refreshed people in Christ. What would it look like for you to change your dynamics in your relationship to bring refreshment and life? And as the band uh, comes back up and we move into a time of communion today, um, and in a few minutes as we play this last song, we're going to invite you to come up these center aisles, take the bread, dip it in the cup. You know, let's think a little bit, you know, we take this time as a moment when we can recommit ourselves to following Jesus, who was the ultimate example of surrendering power in a way that brings life to us. You know, imagine what would it look like if we as a church became known as a people who used our power in people's lives to bring refreshment and blessing and life. Jesus, we thank you so much that we don't need to dominate and exclude others in order to have value. Lord, we ask that you would show us the way to use our power well to bring refreshment and life to others. Thank you for Jesus, who is the ultimate example of what that's, that looks like to give ourselves to bring life to others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.